we don't normally do all this shuffling around up here, but uh, our um, main piano player is not here today, so we've got the B team going back and forth up here. We are continuing this morning with our brief foray into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're taking a few weeks here to go back and have another look at the person and ministry of Jesus. We're in between series. We finished a series on the book of Acts. We're going to start a uh, series through the summer on the book of Psalms. And so we've got about four weeks in the middle here. And so we're going back to look at, again, the person and ministry of Jesus. And this practice of keeping ourselves in the Gospels, as I argued last week, is something that we really uh, can never do enough of, I don't think, because our tendency over time, I believe, is to do this, that we tend to move away mentally. Uh, we move away from the Jesus found in the Bible. And we gradually replace him with the Jesus that is probably more a product of our imagination than he is of the scriptures themselves. As one writer has said, the human heart is an idle factory. And as such, we are incurably engaged in the foolish enterprise of attempting to recreate God in our own image. Uh, coming back to the Gospels again and again is one of the surest ways of fighting against that. Last week we looked at Luke 8, 22 to 25, the story of Jesus calming a raging storm. And uh, in that process, revealing both his humanity and his divinity right there, side by side. Which, on the one hand, helps us to know and understand Jesus better and what he's like. But on the other hand, it shows us that he's a person such as no one we have ever met before or will ever meet and therefore, it's someone that we will spend the rest of our lives and indeed all of eternity being fascinated with, sometimes surprised by, occasionally puzzled at, and always inexplicably drawn to. Uh, this morning, we're shifting our attention to chapter 9 a little further on in Luke's Gospel, verses 46 to 48, and listening in on a brief but uh, revealing exchange between Jesus and his disciples on the subject of greatness. Before we look at that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please guide us now by your spirit into these truths that you, by that same spirit, have written and then have preserved for us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that are not hard but receptive and malleable, so that in this very moment you might remake us, or at least some part of us, in your image. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we read the passage itself, there's not a lot to the passage. Before we read it, though, it's helpful, I think, to think about how these verses, even this little section, fits into the overall plot line of Luke's gospel. Uh, what is the plot line of Luke's gospel? I think the overall structure of Luke can be seen, one way of seeing it is a response to three key questions. Um, the first question that Luke's gospel answers is, who is Jesus? The, uh, the identity of Jesus is the overriding concern of the first nine chapters of Luke. It keeps coming up all over the place. And it comes to a climax in chapter 9, verses 27 to 36, where this question, who is Jesus, who is this, is finally and definitively answered um, by God himself. As Jesus stands there on top of this mountain with Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets, both of them there to pay homage, as it were, to hear God say, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so that settles the identity of Jesus in Luke's gospel, the Mount of Transfiguration. And then with the identity of Jesus settled, there's this long 
middle section of Luke that seems to run from about a halfway through chapter 9 up to the middle of chapter 19. And, and whereas the first question was, who is Jesus? And the answer was, God's Son, the Messiah. This long middle section of Luke provides multiple answers to a second question, which is, what does it mean to follow this Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? Which then leads to the final question addressed in Luke from 1928 to the end of the gospel. Where is Jesus going? What's the mission? What did he come to do? And the answer that Luke supplies is, he's going to a cross. He came to die. That was the mission. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What did he come to do? Now, in between that first section, dealing with Jesus' identity, and the second section, dealing with the subject of discipleship, there is this small transitional section, 9, 37 to 50, which kind of prepares the way. It sets us up for this long middle section of the gospel by showing very clearly the disciples' need for discipleship and maturity and growth and training and instruction. So in 9, 37 to 43, Jesus casts out a demon from a boy, and the reason Jesus has to do so... It's because although the disciples were asked to do it first, we're told there, they couldn't do it. And Jesus, clearly frustrated, cries out regarding the faithlessness of the people, including his own disciples, and then does what they could not do but should have been able to do. But then right on the heels of that in verses 44 to 45, while everyone is still celebrating what has happened, Jesus tells them to listen carefully. So in the middle of this celebration, the demon's been thrown out, Jesus kind of His timing is terrible, isn't it? But Jesus tells him to listen carefully and then very simply tells him that he, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That is, handed over to be done with as they please. So right there, you see side by side, you see this image of power. A demon is cast out right next to an image of powerlessness. The one who overpowered the demon is himself overpowered or going to be overpowered by mere men. The disciples are confused. They don't know what to do with this information, the passage tells us. How could the one who just threw out a demon be overtaken by men? It's a fair question. And then Luke provides two quick vignettes to give us a glimpse as to their mindset and to the maturity of the disciples at this point in their life, showing their misguided understandings about greatness and their small-mindedness regarding the kingdom work that they're about to enter into. In short, this uh, transitional section, we get this very, uh, not very flattering picture of the disciples. On the one level, they know Jesus is the Messiah, but they have a long way to go before they fully understand what kind of Messiah he came to be. They're confused. And uh, they've got completely wrong ideas about greatness. And their view of what God is doing through his kingdom is very narrow, very parochial. They're good guys, but they've got a lot to learn before they're ready to take over the mantle from Jesus. The verses before us this morning are part of this transitional section showing the disciples' great need for growth and maturity. Let's listen now to the passage. Luke 9, verses 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all 
is the one who is great. The disciples' lives had changed a great deal in a short period of time. You know, they went from a pretty settled life of relative obscurity and stability to a very unsettling, very public kind of life. Um, They'd been handpicked by this one whom they now realize is the Messiah. They'd been given a share of his power and authority. They had a special place in Jesus' work and ministry. Unfortunately, they knew it. They knew it. And more than that, they were starting to enjoy, I think, their privileged position. In a word, and among other things, they'd gotten caught up in this pursuit of greatness, worldly greatness, and were all about making a name for themselves. And to make matters worse, they were pursuing greatness according to this pattern and thinking, uh, based on their thinking on some very wrong ideas about what Jesus was going to do while he was here. Again, they knew he was the expected deliverer, the Messiah, but they had really no clue what that was going to mean, how that was really going to work out at this point. They still thought he was going to be some kind of political figure, someone who was going to overthrow those in power. And of course, once he overthrows the powers that be, he's obviously going to need some people to help him in administering and running the new kingdom. So guess who's already jockeying for positions on Jesus' cabinet? You can almost hear them, right? You know? What are you talking about, Thomas? If anybody deserves a special recognition around here, it's me, says Andrew. Any fool could see that. You, are you serious, says Peter? I was the one who was up on the mountain with Jesus. I was the one who got to see him standing there with Moses and Elijah. And where are you? I'll tell you where you were. You're hanging around at the bottom of the mountain with the rest of the guys. Who knows what they actually said, but it would have been something like that. I'm fairly certain. And as they argued, it was clear to Jesus that they had some funny and bad ideas about greatness. They thought it was about status and achievement and recognition. They thought it was an object to be pursued. So what does Jesus do? Well, in response to their arguing and bickering, Jesus takes hold of a child and he has the child stand beside him. And you have to understand uh, at this point that um, the view of children in those days was not as exalted as it is in our own. Today, children are the subject of a great deal of attention, and that's, that's great. We have entire welfare agencies set up with multi-million dollar budgets to look after their interests. We have specialty hospitals dedicated to children alone, and there's the task of educating our children, which is a massive enterprise. And beyond that, we have an economy which deliberately targets and caters to the youth of our society because it knows that that is where our heart is, and where your heart is, the wallet soon follows. But that's not how it was in Jesus' day. Children were valued absolutely. People loved their children absolutely, but they were valued more for what they would become than for what they were at the moment when they were little. And so while they were still young and small, they were not considered to be of any great consequence. They were objectively unimportant as unimportant as that nameless person that you drive past at the corner of college and corporate with a sign saying he's hungry and he'll accept anything you've got, or the homeless lady that approaches you outside of the coffee shop asking for change. You know who I'm talking about. This is precisely why Jesus picked a child to make his point. He picked someone that none of the disciples would have classified as great by any stretch of the imagination. 
He picked someone blatantly unimportant and then said that whoever welcomed this insignificant, unimportant child in his name, that it would be as if they had welcomed Jesus himself and therefore his father as well. You see, it's easy to get someone to be hospitable to important people. What's much harder and much rarer is to see people extending the same sort of hospitality to the so-called insignificant and unimportant people. The disciples were thinking that greatness had something to do with status and recognition and achievement and who knows what else. Jesus showed them that a truer indicator of greatness is how it responds to smallness. To little things. To things that are of no account in the world's eyes. I remember an occasion this years ago now but I had an opportunity to welcome a child, so to speak, into my midst. It was a Saturday morning, kind of early. And uh, the day when I was pretty busy with other things, I wanted to be busy with other things. Really didn't want to be bothered that morning, and a man came to the door doing some kind of research poll. I'm always a bit skeptical of people coming to the door by instinct, particularly when the person standing there looks a bit suspicious to me, which means doesn't look like the sort of person I usually hang out with, which is a terrible definition, isn't it? And that was the case with this man. He was unkempt, his clothes are wrinkled, a little dingy looking. He was a little bit on the nose, as the Aussies say. He wore thick Coke bottle glasses. One eye was looking at you, the other one not so much. He told me what he wanted, and I reluctantly agreed to do this survey. Honestly, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I was hoping he would get through it quickly and he would move along and I could get along with get on with my morning. So he stood on the porch, I stood in the doorway while he asked me questions. As he went through the survey, I quickly realized that this guy was for real. This was a legitimate survey. He wasn't setting me up for a sales pitch. But I did not invite him in. The survey got to be quite long, and I watched as this man had to juggle several booklets, pins, clipboards, other paraphernalia that was part of the process. But I still did not invite him in. It was a cold, drizzly, wet day, and as we stood in the doorway, the wind began to blow a little harder, making the cold more biting. I still didn't invite him in. Eventually, we finished the survey. The man thanked me for my time and then gathering all his belongings He walked away. I followed him out the door after a minute, and I stood in my driveway and watched him go around the corner and disappear. It was getting colder, and I shivered, and I thought to myself, starting to feel a little guilty about not inviting this man in and at least offering him a cup of tea or coffee. And this line from a Stephen Curtis Chapman song keeps going through my head. These are the moments of truth. What would love have me do? See, if that man had been someone I had regarded as important, as having dignity simply because he was a man, a fellow image bearer of God, I would have invited him inside. If I'd regarded him as really important and not just a nuisance, then the red carpet would have come out and all sorts of things would have been set in motion. But in my eyes... In that moment, because of my whacked-out perspective, he wasn't someone important. Just a guy trying to earn a minimum wage, doing a job I would never dream of doing. A man who certainly wasn't climbing any corporate ladders, who was probably not ever going to set the world on fire. 
No one's going to be asking him for his autograph. No one will be looking to write his life story, most likely. And I did not welcome him into my home. It's not so much that I think this man noticed that I hadn't offered him anything. I don't think he actually expected it. But you see, I noticed. I knew what I should have done and could have done, but I didn't do it. And you know what the worst part is? I told this man I was a Christian. And then I treated him like everybody else. That's how I responded to the little people in my world that day. That's how I responded to the insignificant, the objectively unimportant. How do you respond to the little people in your world? How do you respond to the common, the unspectacular the ordinary. Who are the people that you walk right past hoping that you don't catch their eye? Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Having said that one measure of greatness is seen in how it responds to the unimportant and the seemingly insignificant And that's certainly true. I don't, however, want you to go off on a tangent here. Because I think it's easy to mishear, misinterpret what Jesus is saying and to miss out on a very important lesson here. Because it seems to me that the point of Jesus' words is not so that we come away from all this saying to ourselves, Ah, now I understand. Being great means that we, and then you fill in the blank, we uh, notice children, we... Welcome strangers. Those are good things to do, but that's not the point. Because it doesn't much matter what you put in the blank, because once you've filled in the blank with anything, you've already gotten off on the wrong track. You've already missed it. Once you begin trying to work out what the formula for greatness is, you can be sure you've completely lost the plot. Jesus didn't pull this little child beside him so that his disciples would then turn around and start trying to pursue greatness in a different way. He pulled the child in front of them to show them that they hadn't the slightest idea what they were talking about on the subject of greatness. See what I'm saying? The disciples' problem is not that they're trying to become great, but in the wrong way. The problem was that they were trying to become great. Period. The problem was what they were even thinking about it and pursuing it at all. The problem was that they thought greatness was a worthy thing to pursue, but it isn't. And the problem isn't just a pursuit of greatness per se, it's what drives it deep down underneath. The passage talks about their reasoning. He knew their reasoning. Both the person who chases greatness through worldly success and the person who chases greatness through self-sacrifice and denial and being humble and helpful, often those people have the exact same root problem. Self-promotion and pride can drive both of those things. Just because you dress it up in pretty clothes or baptize it in spiritual categories doesn't change it from a vice to a virtue. And it is this root problem, you see, of pride that is, I believe, what is ultimately being addressed here. Just as a fever is a symptom of something else going on inside the body, so too is the disciples' argument about greatness a symptom of something else going on inside their hearts. 
It's the sin of pride. With regard to this particular sin, C.S. Lewis has some helpful things to say. He says, pride is essentially competitive. It's essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure merely from having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but strictly speaking, they're not. That sort of pride is really vanity. Pride comes in when you believe yourself to be or want yourself to be richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison, the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. If I'm a proud man, he says, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival. He is my enemy. The disciples, you see, were proud men. Their pride led them to compare themselves with themselves, and that led to envy and rivalry, ultimately an argument about which one of them would be the greatest. Now, it's important, I think, to make a qualifying remark here uh, because we don't want to confuse satisfaction with pride. There's a kind of satisfaction that comes from having done a job well. And often, when that happens, we say that people are proud of this or that particular accomplishment. And in that context, what people typically mean is that they're satisfied with the outcome of something or with a particular thing itself and that it brings them a certain degree of pleasure knowing that a thing was well done and that they had something to do with that. That, in my judgment, is a good thing. Nothing wrong with being satisfied over something. The problem comes when you don't want to share that. The problem comes when you find that you're unable to rejoice at the victories or successes of another. The problem comes when you secretly applaud the failure of others, but never publicly. When these sort of things happen, you know that your satisfaction has morphed into pride and it's gone sour. It would have been nothing wrong with the disciples feeling some sense of satisfaction at the way the Lord had worked in and through them and in the lives of others. But it had gone way beyond that to the point where they, they could not rejoice with their fellow disciples, but instead saw them as a threat to their own standing, to their own greatness, and began to compare and compete with one another. And the question at this point is, what are we to make of all this? I think there are a number of things we can learn from these verses. For starters, one thing these verses say is that for many of us, I suspect, we're going to have to unlearn a great deal of what we've been taught about greatness. We use the language of greatness and think about great people. We're often thinking you know, in categories completely foreign to the scriptures. Or at the very least, we're thinking in a very narrow sense of what greatness is or involves. So the person who runs into a burning building to rescue her children is great, and she is. Absolutely. But the person who faithfully shows up day after day to bathe and care for the bedridden shut-in in the asylum is not regarded in the same way most of the time. And that story isn't going to be on the 6 o'clock news. But in these verses we see Jesus taking a very common, very simple, very ordinary very unremarkable thing like being kind to a child and he holds that up as a paradigm of true greatness. 
When we see that kind of thing, we see that God evaluates things on an entirely different sort of scale than the one we typically use. Which is good news, isn't it? Because it opens up all kinds of possibilities for those of us who live unspectacular and ordinary lives, which is most of us. It means that greatness is a possibility for all of God's people, not just the privileged and extraordinarily gifted. It means that there must be a lot of other simple, common, unremarkable things which would meet Jesus' criteria. You might be thinking, but I thought uh, greatness was something we shouldn't pursue. And that's true. We're coming to that in a moment. The next thing I want to say that we can learn from these verses is this, is that truly great people are not only willing to welcome the unimportant and insignificant, they're also willing to be the unimportant and insignificant. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Another way of saying that is that one indicator of greatness is the complete absence of a concern for greatness. A famous singer whose name escapes me, that's how famous she was, um, <laughs> a famous singer was once asked who she thought was the greatest singer in the world, to which she responded, I have no idea who the greatest singer in the world is. I'm quite sure that it isn't me. And it's probably someone that most of us have never, ever heard of and never, ever will. Thirdly, to say that there are indicators by which we might recognize greatness is not to say, however, that we ought to make becoming great, even in biblical terms, a goal. The Bible makes it clear that the main thing we're meant to be pursuing in this life is not greatness, it's God. It's not an accomplishment, it's a person. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Does that mean greatness in and of itself is a bad thing? No, of course not. There are plenty of great people in the Bible as well as in our own world. Great is not a dirty word. The Apostle Paul was a great man, but, and here's the key, he didn't set out to become one. You know what I'm saying? Greatness is okay as a place you might end up. It's not okay as a flight plan. You can arrive there, but you can't plan the trip. You might get there, but you can't go there. The truth is, even as Jesus is correcting some of their thinking on greatness, what it is, what it isn't, he knows at this point that the cross is still in front of him, and they don't know it yet. He knows that he'll soon be modeling for them the downward mobility that is the gospel. He'll be humbling himself. He'll be submitting himself to a penalty meant for others for sins he did not commit on behalf of a people who absolutely do not deserve it. The greatest thing he will do is offer himself up as a sacrifice and abdicate his rights, not claim them, and let go of his exalted position and die a humiliating death. Jesus knew that the kingdom he came to establish was completely counterintuitive to anything his disciples had ever thought. And the values of that kingdom were not like anything in the world. And the criteria for greatness in his kingdom was light years away from the things that they were bickering and fighting about. Something so different that the first would be last. And the last 
will be first. And little, grimy face, runny nose, objectively unimportant children will be welcomed as if they are Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, this exchange in Luke's gospel that reveals so clearly the disciples' need to grow and mature is revealing not only for them, it's revealing for us. So, Father, I pray that um, the work that you did in them as they continued to travel and journey with Jesus, would you please do that work within us? There's so many ways we need to grow and change and mature. There are values that we cling to that have nothing to do with you or your kingdom. Um, Father, use your word and your truth to jar us back into reality. Conform us to these things. Father, make us more like your son. Thank you for calling us to yourself, for committing yourself to this task. We look forward to the ways that you are going to do these things. And, um, and we are encouraged to keep going even in the midst of our failure because you have promised you are going to finish this. And there's never been a project that you have not finished. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering to support the ministries of this church and and other ministries supported through this church. Thank mm-hmm. you.